This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. And here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. The AU that we have, it doesn't have the capacity to do some of the things that we expect them to do. And I think we expect too much of the organization. It doesn't have all these special powers to solve the, the cancer problems that, that the continent is experiencing. That's Professor Kweku Nuwama, Senior Professional Lecturer and Chair at the International Peace and Conflict Resolution Program at American University on what the African Union can and cannot do. Details coming up also. Female leaders and activists from Chad, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Gabon and Guinea say they want to be involved in the highest decision-making circles of their country's military governments. These stories and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story. Military leaders in Guinea have dissolved the government, saying they will appoint a new one, but did not say when. Government members' passports were ordered seized and their bank accounts frozen. General Amara Kamara said in a video address last night that day-to-day business would continue as usual under the Deputy Secretary Generals until a new government was formed. The West African nation has been led by a military regime since soldiers ousted President Alpha Conde in 2021. Sahel expert Michael Sherkin, director of global programs at 14th North Strategies, describes to VOA's Carol Van Dam the chances of Guinea returning to civilian rule as the regional bloc ECOWAS and the international community have been pushing to, re- the, to the regime to do so for the past three years. Mamadi Dumboye, who's the, the junta leader, interim president, he has many titles, interim president, he used to be a colonel, I think he just promoted himself to general. He's been taking steps in order to make an election happen. I would not pretend that this election would be free or fair, or that the steps that he's taken have been the kind of steps that you do if you want to ensure a free or fair election. It's more about like, just getting it done and ensuring that he gets to hold on to power. But it's possible. All of the steps are many steps that you have to go through in order to have an election, particularly a a decent election. And by and large, a lot of that stuff has been shortcutted or just simply not done. So I think he is committed to an election. I don't think he's committed to a free and fair election. It's just about having it, doing it, hopefully doing something that will satisfy ECOWAS and the rest of the international community who may or may not be willing to just sort of swallow it and then move on. Part of the actions that the regime took was ordering members of the government to return their vehicles and passports as soon as possible. What do you make of that? Very hard to tell. Uh, I have to say solid information about what he, why he's done any of this is very hard to come by. And there's a lot of speculation and I really don't know. And I, I don't feel embarrassed by saying that because I'm not sure anybody really knows exactly what to make of that, except that it falls in line with his desire to try to control the situation as much as possible. Also to demonstrate that he's taking action. Perhaps he's trying to message, message the Guinean population that he's very concerned about the situation in Guinea because there are a lot of serious economic problems in Guinea. The, the Guinea in many ways is, is, is a real mess, particularly the economy. 
And a lot of it has to do with the fact that in December, there was a huge explosion at a giant fuel depot that has made fuel of gasoline and diesel scarce. And they've really been struggling in order to deal with this, but without much success. It seems Guinea is following the path of several other West African nations now with these recent military coups and what have you. Or is this a different situation? This is a different situation because Guinea already had its military coup. And so it's not inconsistent. I don't think this is anything new. But, of course, once you have a coup, subsequent coups are kind of that much easier. And we know that Dumbuya is very concerned about the possibility of a coup against him. And these coups are not necessarily going to come from politicians or even from street protesters. The coups are going to come from within his own security forces. However, what happens is that if people within these security forces smell weakness, if there's a lot of chaos, if there's a lot of discontent, then this becomes a pretext for acting. And I think that Dumbuya is very mindful of this. And a lot of the efforts that he's done over the last year to really crack down on dissent and really try to control people, like he shut down the Internet, He's really clearly afraid and he's trying to hold on to power. Now, what makes the situation in Guinea similar to the situation in Mali in, in Burkina Faso is that I don't think there's really any indication of a sincere desire on the part of these putschists to return to real civilian democratic rule. They're not really interested. I think Dumbuya is interested in having a, an election, as I said before, but it's going to be a very stage-managed election that will just sort of rubber stamp him. That's uh, Michael Shirkin, Director of Global Programs at 14th North Strategies. He was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam here in Washington. A poll by the Jewish People Policy Institute reveals many Israelis would opt to dismantle Hamas over freeing Gaza hostages. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant proposes a post-conflict plan excluding Hamas from governance, setting up a multinational reconstruction force with Egypt playing a key role and granting Israel's military operational freedom in Gaza. Ori Nier, spokesperson for Americans for Peace Now, discussed these developments with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El Shinawi. I saw that poll and, and, and I also saw other polls with other results. Uh, it is clear that the Israeli public is split, split about almost anything and everything. But on this issue, there's a real split there, which has to do with worldviews of people. At the beginning of the war, there was a consensus about the war and, and a broad support for it. But over time, it became clear that the two chief goals of the war to release the hostages and to destroy Hamas were incompatible. And more so, it became clear that they were they were even antithetical, I would say. It became clear that Netanyahu wants to extend the war for his own political and legal reasons, for, for his own political gains. And as a result of that, the division regarding the objective of the war was superimposed over the division between liberals and conservatives in Israel and between those who support Netanyahu and those who oppose him. So it's true that there are many Israelis, maybe even a majority, who would 
prioritize destroying Hamas, leading to this total victory that Netanyahu is talking about over releasing the hostages. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant proposes a post-conflict plan excluding Hamas from governance involving a multinational reconstruction force with Egypt playing a key role and granting Israeli military operational freedom in Gaza. Is this strategy feasible for ensuring peace and security and is there any indication that the Egyptians would agree to play that role? It's hard to tell if the Egyptians would be willing to play such a role. I think that the, the Egyptians would be willing to play a mediating role, a moderating role as they have in the past. But Egypt is very, very, for understandable reasons, obviously, is very careful about suggesting or, or showing any kind of readiness to absorb Palestinians from the Gaza Strip. The scenario that Gallant portrayed is understandable and it's logical, but it's going to be very difficult to actually implement it. There has to be a Palestinian role, not a Hamas role, but a Palestinian role. In other words, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, or technocrats from the Palestinian community in the future of Gaza. It's it's impossible to run the Gaza Strip with only international forces or international agencies. So uh, there has to be some kind of a Palestinian component. I know that the administration has been asserting that point to the Israeli government, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. The Washington Post disclosed efforts by countries including Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, along with the United States to forge a peace plan to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Could such a plan realistically progress without initial signs of endorsement from Israel? In other words, are they discussing a peace project that is fundamentally dead? I don't think it's fundamentally dead in the sense that it can be implemented in the future. It is quite clear that at the moment, both because of the makeup of the Netanyahu government and because of the sentiment in the Israeli society, a Palestinian state in the near future is a non-starter for both the government and the public. That is clear. But what I think the administration is trying to do here, together with other allies, with international allies of the United States, is to put the kind of pressure on the Netanyahu government that would either make it accept negotiations with the Palestinians, a resumption of a diplomatic process that has not been the case for many years now, or preferably, and I think that that's the issue here, to put enough pressure on this for this government to fall and for a more moderate Israeli government to come to power, which would be more open to a future Palestinian state. The prospects of all this happening are very low, in my opinion, but you have to start somewhere, sometime. And as I see it, the only hope for a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a two-state solution. So it is never too late and it is never redundant to try to pursue it. That was uh, Ori Nir, spokesperson for Americans for Peace Now, speaking with VOA's uh, Mohamed El Shinawi. The French news agency AFP says anti-Rwanda demonstrators in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, city of Goma, burned Western countries' flags, accusing them of supporting Kigali, which they say backs the M23 rebels. Several dozen demonstrators, some draped in the DRC flag with red bands around their heads, trampled on the flags of the United States, the European Union, France, and Poland. 
Dozens of soldiers and civilians have reportedly been killed or wounded in the latest fighting between M23 rebels and the army. The violence has pushed tens of thousands of civilians towards Goma. The DRC government, the United Nations, the U.S. and some European countries have accused Rwanda of backing the M23 rebels, one of the largest militant groups operating in the eastern DRC. Kigali has denied supporting the group. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. And for more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. The African Union Summit last weekend is being criticized for failing to present any plans for ending several devastating conflicts on the continent. I asked Professor Kuweku Nuama, Senior Professorial Lecturer and Chair with the International Peace and Conflict Resolution Program at American University, what the African Union mission entails and if the criticism leveled against the organization is justified. So I think it is a fair criticism, but it's not a surprising criticism because this is the AU that we have. It doesn't have the capacity to do some of the things that we expect them to do. And I think we expect too much of the organization. It doesn't have all these special powers to solve the the kinds of problems that the continent is experiencing. Uh, It can help. It can help do mediation. It can help do fact-finding missions, offer conciliatory services and good offices. But at the the basic level, managing security uh, is the responsibility of the states, the sovereign states. And, and Professor, you're right. Uh, we have problems, uh, terrorists in the Sahel region. We have a civil war in Sudan and this violence in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. So basically, as far as these conflicts are concerned, the AU has no power to actually bring remedy to these situations. No, it cannot just wave a magic wand and let these problems disappear. It can provide a forum where these kinds of problems are discussed, and the AU is doing that. There's a lot of bilateral meetings happening in Addis Ababa. There's a lot of uh, the AU nudging countries to do the right thing. They come up with the norms, and they come up with uh, collective security architecture that gives some uh, ideas and provides forums for cooperation. But basically, all these problems have local origins, local roots that governments need to take responsibility for. And, and the reason I mentioned that is because ahead of the summit, Professor, several African governments were saying they would put forward strategies to end the conflicts that are killing thousands of people, you know, that have sparked poverty and hunger and stalled the development in the continent. But no strategy has been mentioned so far. They can come up with their strategies, but having a strategy and implementing it and having the capacity to implement it properly are two different things. And so we have no shortage of plans and you know goodwill and strategies for preventing and managing conflicts. But you got to have the capacity to do it. You look at ECOWAS. ECOWAS comes up with all these you know programs and all these cool prevention norms and sanctions. It cannot enforce the sanctions. And and so a, a lot of times I think the organization itself. Over 
overestimate what it can do. When African leaders are the ones who have created these organizations, they don't give it enough resources to be able to do the things that they expect it to do. But then they just go and they pretend that everything is fine. They give their little speeches and they post their photos and they go home. But that we have these problems because of the things that African leaders have failed to do at home, which is govern properly, develop the economies, fight corruption, uh, create an environment where everybody, where our young people feel they have hope. Those are the things. The African Union cannot do those things for you. The African Union can help, but these are the primary responsibility of sovereign states. And lastly, uh, Professor, talking about speeches, AU Commission Chair Musa Faki Mahamat made the usual calls for leaders to tackle conflicts on the continent. And as usual, he condemned the coups and quoted great African leaders of the distant past calling for Africa to unite. Is the dream of one Africa still viable? Part of it is viable, and part of it makes practical sense. So, for example, we can let's focus on trade. For example, so we have the uh, Africa Continental Free Trade Area, uh, which is now beginning to pick up speed. So, hopefully, we trade with our neighbors and we help solve economic problems. That that's the, that's where the practical aspects of you know uh, Pan-African cooperation can be seen. When it comes to collective security, yes, there's stuff that we can do to help each other manage conflicts, but it re- requires the willingness of states to work with the organization. And to prevent conflicts, the organization can come up with norms and guidelines and invest in leadership uh, and all that stuff. But at, at, at the operational level, nation states are the ones who are in the driver's seat. And so we, we don't, I don't know if we want an organization that can go into these countries and tell them, you must do this or you must do that. Maybe that's not the type of organization we want. We want the African Union to be a place where we come and celebrate Africa and think about our collective identities. And maybe someday we will you know, work more as a united continent. But I hope that at least at the operational level, uh, Pan-Africanism will play out in at least trade. Let's start with trade and then build out from there. That was uh, Professor Kweku Nuwama, Senior Professorial Lecturer and Chair with the International Peace and Conflict Resolution Program at American University. He spoke with me from Washington, D.C. Female leaders and activists from Chad, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Gabon and Guinea say they want to be involved in the highest decision-making circles of their country's military governments. The woman who met in Chad's capital, Ninjamina, under the theme African Women in Transitional Governments say women bear the brunt of violence from military takeovers but are underrepresented in high political levels. Moki Edwin Kenzeka reports from neighboring Cameroon. The women gathered in Jamena say they want to be an integral part of the transitional governments in their countries, Chad, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Gabon and Guinea. The leaders and activists say the military leaders in their countries should know that full participation in politics for women is fundamental in a democratic transition and vital in achieving sustainable development and peace. Amina Priscilla Longer is Child Minister of Women and Child Protection. She spoke at this week's Njamena Conference and on Charles State TV on Africa Women in Political Transitions, which began on Monday and ends on Wednesday. 
L'Afrique a connu et continue de vivre des moments de transition politique, souvent marqués par des She says military-imposed political transitions are increasing in Africa with leaders hardly involving women in high decision-making circles. Longo says women should be active players in governments of transition because women constitute more than 53% of the population of countries where there are transitional governments and suffer most of the injustices violence, political and economic hardships in countries where the military seizes power. The women say few of them have ministerial positions in transitional governments. No woman serves as president of a transitional council and none of the military governments have appointed a woman as prime minister. Some of the women noted only Gabon has a female defense minister, Brigadier General Brigitte Okonowa. The women say although military takeovers are not democratic, they should be involved in decision-making during efforts to restore civilian governments. Chad's transitional president, General Mohamed Idris Debi Idnu, took part in the meeting. He says the women's call for greater representation in transitional political debates and decision-making is a reminder that women's political participation is a requirement for gender equality and genuine democracy. Chers sœurs du Mali, du Burkina Faso, du Niger, de la Guinée et du Gabon, he says he is assuring the African continent that after the N'Djamena conference, militaries that lead transitional governments in Chad, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Gabon and Guinea will involve more women in decision-making to reinforce political governance founded on equality and equity. He says the women meeting in Chad has reminded military leaders that efforts should be stepped up toward female emancipation and gender equity as enshrined in international conventions. Debbie says he and his peers in the West African states, led by military rulers, are preparing democratic elections. He also says the absence of women from positions now should not discourage them from being candidates and taking part in elections that will end transitional rule. The women say they plan to make their participation in transitional governance a subject of discussion as the world prepares to observe International Women's Day on March 8th. Moki Edwin Kinzaka, VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. Authorities in Cape Town launched an investigation Monday after a foul stench swept over the South African city. City officials inspected sewage facilities for leaks and an environmental health team was activated before the source of the odor was discovered. A ship docked in the harbor carrying 19,000 live cattle from Brazil to Iraq.
The Associated Press says the ship has become a target of serious criticism by animal welfare groups. They say the smell is indicative of the awful conditions the animals endure, having already spent two and a half weeks on board. The ship has docked in Cape Town to load feed for the cattle. If you are in Sudan witnessing events taking place there or if you have family you are talking to there, you can call us on WhatsApp and let us know how things are going there. Dial the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. The number again, the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Nabil Biagio, and our engineer, Rob McLean, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.